Hello, this is Chris Martin. We're here with Half Hour of Heterodoxy, sponsored by Heterodox Academy. I'm here with Matt Grossman, who's a professor of political science at uh, Michigan State University. He specializes in research on political parties and interest groups and group coalitions that support parties or oppose parties. And we're here to talk primarily about his latest book, Asymmetric Politics, which he's co-authored with David Hopkins. So welcome to the show, Matt. Good to be with you. So I wanted to start not by talking about the book itself, we'll get to that, but talking a bit about what undergraduate students typically know about the political parties when they come into college. Well, I think we're in an era where they uh, know that the parties are divided, uh, that they have different uh, issue positions, uh, but they tend to be a little bit more attuned to their social issue positions uh, than their economic policy positions, uh, and they tend not to know that their uh, priorities, uh, issue concerns, and uh, mixes of uh, positions might be a little different than those of their parents. So can you point to a couple of areas where they might be mistaken? Well, I think uh, the the sort of everybody knows that you know the Republican Party is pro-life, the Democratic Party is pro-choice, and those are the kinds of uh, easy, easily accessible, and more social and more black and white positions uh, that uh, the the two parties uh, have that undergraduates find quite accessible, um, and it tends to undergird their partisanships more uh, than it did uh, previous uh, eras of students. I think there's a little bit less understanding of the, the history of each party uh, and mm -hmm. sort of where we have uh, come from in terms of the, the issue positions of, of each political party uh, and not mm -hmm. quite as much of a uh, overwhelming sense that the economic policy dimension is really what defines the difference between the two parties. Hmm. And what do you think undergraduate students should come away with after college? What should they know about asymmetric polarization and polarization in general? Well, I certainly think it's important for people to understand uh, that the parties in Congress are uh, dividing uh, ever more, uh, that, uh, the, that, that the left and right uh, within each party are pulling the parties apart from one another, yeah. uh, and that it wasn't always this way, uh, that yeah. uh, we used to, at the elite level, have a whole lot more uh, cooperation, a whole lot more moderates, uh, and uh, that it uh, seemed to uh, make major policymaking uh, easier. So, uh, yeah. for example, people may not know that you know, most major new laws pass with two-thirds support and pass with majorities of both political parties. So uh, what we're seeing now, uh, where one party tries to make policy on its own when they're in power, uh, is a relatively new phenomenon. And I think that's mm -hmm. important that people know. Um, but I think we may be over-learning a little bit on the public level. I wouldn't want students to come away thinking uh, the public is divided into cl two clear factions. They disagree with each other on everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're sort of driving the, the parties apart. I think uh, it's worth uh, separating what elites are doing in Congress uh, and the ways that the public is changing. Okay. So in terms of that change, uh, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann have traced that primarily to the Gingrich era. Uh, Newt Gingrich's work as speaker from the mid-80s to the mid-90s approximately. Would you agree with that assessment, or do you think there's something else going on? 
Well, it's certainly true that the Republican Party's uh, move right in Congress coincides uh, with Gingrich's election to Congress in 1978. Uh, and uh, the, the roll call voting data, uh, that's when we put all of the votes in Congress together and we try to put people on a single dimension. It, it certainly shows that the Republicans have been uh, moving rightward uh, since that era. Uh, and Mann and Ornstein, of course, were there, uh, even having uh, Gingrich in a uh, kind of small group session with them in 1978. So it's it's reasonable for from their perspective to say all these things he was talking about, about how the minority party would, would stick together and oppose the majority party agenda, they really have come to come to uh, fruition. Um, but I think that uh, that does leave out some of the earlier history. So, for example, the Democratic Party's uh, transition really was quite a bit earlier than that and really was about uh, losing uh, the South, uh, their Southern, more conservative constituency. And really, most of the Democratic Party's uh, overall move to the left by that same data really had occurred already by then. Uh, it really was from like the 1940s to the 1970s. Okay. Uh, and it really was about losing. Uh, losing uh, their conservative constituency yeah. in the South. Okay. So in terms of their overall assessment, too, they talk about the violation of norms. So the idea that the filibuster would not be typically used has now changed. Now the norm is that the filibuster is consistently used in the Senate for any major piece of legislation. Um, talked about other norms like, well, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann use the phrase hostage-taking to describe one of the government shutdowns. Um, do you think describing this phenomenon in terms of the devolution of norms is uh, appropriate based on the evidence or not? Well, it's certainly true that um, without having uh, big rules changes, we have seen changes in practices. So it's certainly reasonable to call that a change in uh, norms. Uh, and we have had this pattern of kind of one-upsmanship between the parties where when one party gets in power, they... Uh, sort of change those norms to, to be in favor of majority policy making and then the next party gets in power and they say well this the last party uh -huh. uh, broke those norms so we're not going to go back to the previous norms so it's very hard to get out of that uh, cycle uh, and I think uh, that that is appropriate. The one place I uh, sort of disagree is I think that the Republican Party has a pretty uh, I guess reasonable uh, uh, I think there's a good reason why they tend to take mm -hmm. these kind of all or nothing moments over the budget and the debt ceiling uh, to try to make their stand there. And that is uh, that the, the, the normal course of policymaking tends to be in a liberal direction. So most major new laws uh, tend to move policy to the left rather than to the right. Uh, and when Republicans are able to uh, change the size and scope of government, it does seem to be in these one-off big budgetary changes tax and budgetary mm -hmm. changes. Um, and so from their perspective, I think they only get a certain number of opportunities uh, to, to really rein in uh, the, the growth of government in size and scope. Uh, and so I think that that's the reason why you see a lot more um, uh, moves on the right during things mm -hmm. like the debt ceiling and uh, government shutdowns, because they see that as their only opportunity to sort of stop the normal course of policymaking. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so that brings me to your latest book with David Hopkins. Uh, there's been some prior scholarship, like the book I just mentioned, on asymmetric polarization. So talk about why you thought it was necessary to write this book. 
Well, our book is, uh, it, it covers the change, but it's less about this change than about the, the sort of long history of difference between uh, the two parties, that the Democratic Party has long been this coalition of social groups that uh, each had a different set of policy concerns and kind of argued over prioritization, whereas uh, the Republican Party has long been uh, this kind of ideological movement-based uh, party that where the conservatives kind of emerged uh, victorious over the liberals and moderates within the Republican Party, uh, and how those two trajectories make for very different campaigns, they make for different governing styles, uh, and they tend to draw from this long-running difference in the public, where the public tends to have broadly conservative sentiments, that is, they're uh, nationalistic, they uh, uh, want a smaller size and scope of government, uh, they are in favor of social traditionalism, but that doesn't actually extend to their policy positions uh, or their views of group competition between the parties. So the Republicans are sort of always in uh, easier position talking broadly about values uh, and about the overall direction of government, about left versus right, whereas the Democrats have tended to be better when they talk more specifically about policies and programs and when they talk about political battles as battles between groups of citizens. Mm -hmm. So undergraduate students tend to lean Democratic. Um, do you think uh, they tend to be aware that they're one of many interest groups? They tend to be in this for the social issues primarily, I think. But do you think they realize that they are one of several interest groups, or do they sometimes see themselves as a core of the Democratic Party, and is that a misunderstanding that you have to address when you teach this? Well, I certainly think uh, that liberals are um, too often think that they're kind of the core of the Democratic Party, uh, when it's actually quite recent that liberals were even a majority of identifiers in the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, so there's sort of a presumption uh, that uh, the, if the Democratic Party isn't taking clearly liberal positions on everything, then that's, uh, you know, something's sort of off uh, and it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of easily corrected. Um, there's less awareness that kind of liberal uh, liberalism as a identity and kind of big government ideas uh, were anathema to the American public for, for a long time. Um, I think that is, that's kind of, they're kind of less aware of that. But I think they, they do, they are aware that they have their own concerns and interests. So uh, take Bernie Sanders, for example. Of course, one reading is that uh, young people wanted a more clearly liberal left candidate, um, but he also, you know, offered free tuition uh, as a plan for, for undergraduates. So there was a, a fairly particular uh, uh, interest group take uh, also there that that might have appealed to young people. So I think students recognize when they're when they're specifically being being pandered to with things like free tuition or we'll pay back your student loans that that wouldn't necessarily be everyone else's top concern. Okay. Um, and my next question has to do with the influence of money in politics. This is may or may not be related to polarization. I was recently watching an interview with Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator, and he mentioned that on the issue of climate change, he feels like um, the anti, well, the, the energy industry, people who tend to lobby against climate change legislation, um, tend to lobby the Republican Party. And he said there are some Republican senators who actually want to address climate change, but they feel to some extent, this is a metaphor that he uses to some extent, as though they're 
they're in a prison because the Republican Party is tight and more hierarchical. Um, and I know the issue of money in politics is one that comes up a lot. So is there evidence showing that the Republican Party tends to be targeted more? Or is that another area of asymmetry? Or do we tend to see symmetry there? Well, I would separate two things. Number one, the majority party in Congress uh, is always going to be targeted more with lobbying and, and contributions. So a lot of what would be going on right now is just that if you're trying to influence policy, you should be trying to influence the Republican Party. They're in control uh, right. of the chambers of Congress and the presidency. Uh, and that's in. And so, for example, uh, in 1994, we saw, you know, when the Republicans took over Congress, we saw a big shift to people who had been supposedly supporting. Democrats for a long time or, uh, or directed toward Democrats who then shifted to the Republicans. Um, and that's just following the, the power. I don't think that has much to do with the, the parties. But of course, okay. business is uh, by far uh, the biggest lobbying uh, force in D.C. and uh, the, the biggest uh, source of, of campaign contributions and uh, has been more uh, allied with uh, the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. Um, but uh, the trend is that actually a little bit of the opposite direction. The trend is that the Democrats are also uh, increasingly reliant on uh, donations from uh, lobbyists and businesses uh, in comparison to their old kind of standard bearer of the unions uh, that have just become kind of less, uh, less unionization rate is just down in the U.S. So that's best, that's less of a good base for the party. Uh, and they've had to, to, to take contributions and, and uh, from lobbyists and uh, from business people uh, as well. Um, so I think I would norm I would mostly disagree that that's a, okay. that's a standing asymmetry between the parties. Okay. Um, and another issue with asymmetry is sometimes when you're talking about asymmetry, um, people want you to portray the parties as symmetric and accuse you of bias if you say they're not. Um, how do you deal with criticism of that sort? Well, I certainly think that uh, it's it's reasonable for people to say, um, you know, for particularly like the Man and Ornstein book that we were talking about uh, uh, before, you know, there they have a, a message about an empirical message about asymmetric polarization. The Republicans are, are more responsible for it, but they, of course, overlay a, a pretty strong normative argument that that's a problem, that they're, that they're to blame for it, uh, and so uh, it's it's not um, it's not a surprise that people would react to that saying. You know, you're not you're not being uh, fair, um, but I don't think that that is a, that's certainly not a good reason to portray the parties as quite similar when they are not. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that that we should always you know assume that that each party is acting out of similar uh, motivations. Um, mm -hmm. But what we have tried to do is kind of explain each party from their own perspective and try to show people that. Um, it, that each party does kind of understand itself, but they sort of mm. misunderstand the other political parties. So, so Democrats commonly portray the Republican Party, for example, as just a uh, just a, a vehicle for the rich, for big business, um, and, and that they're just about kind of distributing benefits to their constituencies. And that's basically just the Democrats seeing the Republicans as the mere image of, of themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. And in similar terms, the Republicans tend to see the Democrats as an, a more ideological party than they are. That is, they see the Democrats as favoring big government for its own sake, favoring centralization for its own sake, um, and uh, 
rather than just you know pursuing lots of different benefits for their constituencies that mm -hmm. um, are trying to trying to solve their constituencies' problems. So we think that mm -hmm. we'd be better off if if each party kind of uh, let <laughs> let themselves be defined uh, uh, mm -hmm. as they normally are because they're usually pretty good at defining themselves, uh, but pretty bad at understanding the opposition. Okay, I think some of the moral psychological research also shows that. When it comes to politics, people aren't very good at understanding the opposition. I think that's an ongoing line of research in the social psychological arena. Yeah, I think our our, um, our only difference with that is that th those studies tend to compare um, liberals with conservatives, um, which is a pretty reasonable thing to do, except that when it comes to the American public, if yeah. you're comparing conservatives, you basically have almost all Republicans are conservatives, whereas yeah. only about half the Democratic Party is liberals. So yeah. you're kind of, you get these comparisons that are really your modal Republican with yeah. your kind of half of the Democratic Party. There's a whole other section of the Democratic Party that really doesn't identify as liberal uh, and might have a tie to the Democratic Party that's just based on one issue or based on the sense that that party represents uh, their minority group in general. And mm -hmm. so uh, they're not necessarily going to follow those same practices that you would get if you're comparing liberals and conservatives. Um, mm -hmm. But but certainly uh, the, the, you know, certainly worth worth thinking about how the, the parties and ideological groups misunderstand one another. Okay. And... Uh Last year was a very anomalous year and in terms of the election with, with Donald Trump being an atypical candidate. And there's been some debate about whether in some ways he does represent the core of the Republican Party or whether he does not and he's an anomaly. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I certainly don't think it, it comes out of uh, nowhere uh, that we uh, have a, a, a candidate uh, with the, the views that, that Donald Trump uh, has. Um, you can sort of see precursors uh, to Donald Trump's views and his public presentation in lots of previous Republican candidacies. Uh, and in the constituency that he, he supports, there's sort of a long run uh, going back to all the way to the Birch Society, to the Christian right, uh, to... Uh, uh, the Tea Party, of course, more recently, uh, that uh, the Republicans have a constituency that's kind of uh, less oriented around uh, their broad economic ideology, has more social concerns, more racial concerns, uh, and that Republican elites have always been a little bit afraid of or uh, having to deal with um, having to try to try to figure out how to integrate them into the parties. But of course, you know that that faction did not usually uh, win, uh, yeah. and uh, the, the uh, Republican elites were completely caught off guard by the, the Trump uh, nomination, and so I don't at all want to underplay uh, that it is uh, that the, the nomination process was a serious break uh, from, uh, from the past. Um, I think since the election, though, it's become clear that uh, there isn't going to be a lot of change to the Republican Party, not as much as people thought. Uh, Donald Trump's um, agenda in the executive branch and the bills he's supporting in the legislative branch are not really much aberration from the Republican Party 
Party's uh, usual agenda and the kinds of areas where he was, say, taking a Democratic Party position occasionally, uh, do not seem to be uh, uh, ones that, that he's following through on once he's in office. So mm -hmm. the campaign was clearly an aberration to some extent, but drawing from mm -hmm. you know some strands of, of uh, the conservative movement's history. But mm -hmm. the, the administration so far, uh, policy-wise, hasn't been much of an aberration. Okay. And um, finally, I want to talk a bit about polarization in other countries. Um, when I talk about polarization in my class, I'm very aware at Emory that we have students from India and China and Korea, as many, many universities do, and students from around the world, really. And uh, talk a bit about how polarization in every country, even though every country has some people who are roughly liberals and some people who are roughly conservatives, doesn't always play out as it has in the U.S. So what's your take on, in, in other countries, do you generally see symmetry and why? Why is that so? Well, I don't know that you, you always see symmetry, but, but clearly both American parties stand out um, in the world. Uh, the First of all, of course, we're, we have the, the fewest number of, of active political parties, right. uh, only two and very uh, un, uncompetitive uh, third parties uh, compared to, to most places in the world and electoral systems that, that make it uh, virtually impossible for third parties to, to succeed. Um, right. As a result of that, both of our parties have to be these very big tents, um, but they are different kinds of big tents. The Democratic Party is the most uh, diverse party in the world. It has to represent all kinds of socially social constituencies with different concerns. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, in another country might break up into different uh, group interests, um, whereas the Republican Party uh, is also quite broad, um, but it is uh, not not uh, a big tent uh, socially. Um, instead, it's kind of a big tent in relying on a very broad ideology um, and kind of being able to be held together by the those sort of broad values or predispositions rather than uh, their, their kind of specific uh, policy uh, concerns. But when we look at it, um, for example, expert ratings of, of the parties internationally, what we find is that the Republican Party is the most consistently conservative party in the world. Uh, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they, you know, always have the most extreme positions, but they tend to have conservative positions across the board. Uh, and strangely, it was, it was actually this kind of national identity dimension uh, around uh, immigration and nationalism that they were kind of least conservative on compared to other parties in the world because there were these right-wing parties in Europe that had these more conservative positions. But those same parties have quite liberal positions on economic policy, on the role of the state. Uh, and so it's very rare, in fact, the Republican Party is probably the only one where you see a party uh, that has these clear positions uh, on the, the national identity uh, dimension uh, that mirrors, that matches them to very conservative positions on uh, economic policy as well. Where the Democratic Party stands out is you just don't see parties in the world that have strong connections to business and unions, <laughs> strong yeah. connections to ethnic groups, religious groups, uh, occupational groups, and kind of have to hold that that broad uh, social coalition together. So, so both of our parties are unique because of the the, the institutions that make for two party system. So, do you think during the Tony Blair era, the Labor Party was maybe similar to the Democratic Party for at least a little while? 
certainly um, Reagan and Thatcher's success both um, uh, kind of presented the Democratic Party and the Labor Party uh, with a dilemma of, you know, how are we going to succeed in an era in which it seems like conservative ideology is on uh, the ascendance? Uh, and both parties reacted similarly. They said, well, we're going to have to moderate. We're going to have to define ourselves as new. And very explicitly, we're kind of copying each other uh, in uh, rhetoric uh, and methods. So that part is uh, that part is 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 quite similar. Um, but I, I don't think that that necessarily means that you'll be able to, to have the transition for the Democrats that you're seeing with the Labor Party now in the UK, uh, where there's a, a, there were all these there were always these old labor, uh, strong liberals who thought uh, you could go back to that and you should. Uh, and they're kind of retaking control of the Labor Party in the UK. Um, and those efforts have not been very successful in the US. So we'll see if, if they work. Okay. So in terms of your future research, are you going to continue researching this topic or where are you going now? Uh, I am, uh, because I, I run an institute that, that is sort of a little more focused on state policy, I'm doing uh, a analysis of the Republican Party's uh, successes in the state, at the state level. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, somewhat broadly similar, uh, which is that uh, the Republicans have gained electorally, um, but it does, hasn't necessarily been matched uh, with success at moving policy in a uh, conservative direction across the board, especially when it comes to the size and scope of, of state governments. Uh, so part of our uh, investigation or argument there is about whether the, uh, whether the, the pattern at the federal level uh, has repeated itself at the state level or whether you can really say that there's kind of a red state and a blue state state model of policymaking, and they really have these, these different trade-offs. Um, so far, what we're seeing is, is not a whole lot. Um, okay. And then the other, um, the, the other big project I'm working on is about uh, inequality and political influence. There's some famous uh, research which suggests that the middle class uh, opinions don't have as much influence on policymaking as the, the, the opinions of the rich. Uh, and we're trying to kind of specify where that is is most likely to occur. And the surprise so far is that it's actually most common in foreign policy uh, that uh, this kind of story that comes from the right uh, that elites favor globalization more than uh, the middle class, that they favor uh, uh, international uh, institutions, foreign aid, these kinds of things, that that actually is what comes through uh, in the uh, in the inequality and public influence uh, as associated with policy adoption. So I'm working a little bit on in that space and a little bit in the state sand party space. Okay, so why do you think foreign policy is the area where that seems to be happening or is it unclear? Uh, I don't think we have a, a clear explanation, but I think that it, it sort of points to the, the one, one story that people tell about uh, unequal influences, uh, you know, the rich have more campaign contributions, they, they sort of directly buy off politicians, and we just don't see a whole lot of evidence for that. That is, um, it, it's not the case that redistributive economic policy wins less often than other kinds of, of policies, um, and uh, where it, 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 
it does seem to be the case. It, it sort of seems like it's more of a story of elite networks. So foreign uh -huh. policy is an area where there really are this, there really is, there has been this foreign policy uh, elite that's bipartisan, mm -hmm. that's in think tanks, that that kind of has views on the role of the U.S. in the world um, and mm -hmm. tends to be influential in uh, foreign policy, but also uh, policy throughout the throughout the world. Um, and, and and in some ways, it just mirrors a, just a long-running phenomenon, whereas people have always known that um, policy is more pro-immigration in most countries than is the public, for example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's, you know, most people know, that. I mean, that's sort of a right. phenomenon. Um, so this is in some ways just kind of matching that up with the opinions of the rich and the middle class, that the rich are also more in favor of foreign aid, more in favor of immigration, more in favor of international institutions uh, than are the, the middle class. So um, I, I th we think that that helps to describe a little bit why um, inequality, increasing inequality might also be associated with a kind of a backlash from the right uh, especially the kind of anti-internationalist right uh, compared to the left. Okay, so is this to some degree a response to the paper by I think Princeton economists who suggested that the U.S. is an oligarchy because of the influence of money? Yeah, now they it was more of the newspaper accounts of their studies that called it an <laughs> oligarchy, but yeah, we're using their same data um, to kind of go back and see which issue areas, uh, which which party preferences were really associated with that disproportionate influence. Okay. So, um, do you have a book coming out maybe in the next two to three years on on these issues, or are these more journal article type? Uh, I think we'll do. We'll, we'll start with in the journal article space. We'll see okay. if it's uh, yeah, if it gets okay. to book. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading them. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you again for your time. Once again, I really appreciate it. This interview series is pretty new, and uh, thank you. Well, great. Yeah. One. One. If I could just do one. Say one more yeah. thing is that. Yeah. Part of our book is about um, the, the interests of the, of the Heterodox Academy, which is that um, the Republican Party um, has kind of established uh, an alternative set of research institutions and an alternative sense of media institutions. Um, and uh, they, they've done that because uh, the mainstream media and mainstream academic institutions are have always been, but are increasingly uh, populated by uh, self-identified liberals and Democrats. Um, and so we try to kind of put that in uh, perspective for the parties that, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, the Republican Party has more of a reason to uh, kind of doubt uh, both academia and the media as being kind of nonpartisan arbiters of, mm -hmm. uh, of truth, of research, mm -hmm. uh, and of facts, um, but that the the outcome of that has been that it's the Republican Party has that's kind of uh, sowed more distrust in those institutions in mm -hmm. uh, among its own supporters uh, and some mm -hmm. and created some alternatives, both at think tanks at the elite level and then at the the mass level conservative media that have mm -hmm. been much more uh, successful. Uh, than uh, equivalent institutions on the Democratic side, because Democrats uh, still trust academia and the media more, um, uh, and I think conservatives would rightly say that that's mostly because you know it's populated by more people who who are like themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So we view our uh, work as kind of helping to uh, voice the importance of the kinds of concerns that Heterodox Academy has, but also kind of put them in the context of why you see um, you know more critiques from from the right and and mm -hmm. why things have kind of gone in the directions they have with uh, media and academia uh, kind of being put in the middle of, of the political right. wars 
Yeah, that aligns with some of Neil Gross's research on why so few professors are conservative. One of the points he makes in the U.S. is that the Republican Party tends to be very critical of that profession, so you would not expect that many people in that profession to vote for the party. Yeah, and it's self-reinforcing. Yeah, I mean, at yeah. the point that you get a, a profession, and, and I would argue that the media story is pretty similar, mm -hmm. uh, that you get a profession, a profession that's kind of oriented in, in, in one direction, then uh -huh. it tends to kind of self-perpetuate like that. Um, and the piece that we would add is that then from a political perspective, the party, it provides an incentive for the Republican Party to really get its supporters uh, to be uh, less deferential to those uh, sources and more uh, tuned to the need for explicitly conservative alternatives. Uh, so yeah. we're, we're, we, we think that that uh, kind of helps to explain the, the direction of the, the Republican Party uh, and the success of, of conservative media at, at the mass level and conservative think tanks at the elite level. Uh, mm -hmm. and kind of displacing those those traditional institutions. Okay. So at the undergraduate level and graduate level too, do you think most students are aware that think tank research tends to be produced for a political purpose? Uh, I think uh, the, I think that that it depends where that what the source comes from, but I think yeah. they understand the basic uh, sense that uh, that that people produce research in the in the course of a of a political debate um, that's both kind of more relevant to ongoing policy discussions and more likely to have a clear uh, ideological uh, perspective. Um, but no, I don't think that they would be aware that you know, for example, you know, that there's three times as many conservative think tanks as liberal think tanks or the, or the kind of history that those really uh, came about as a, uh, as a response to seeing mm -hmm. academia as, as disproportionately liberal um, mm -hmm. and being kind of aligned with uh, the more aligned with the goals of the Democratic Party. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think they're, they're generally aware, but I think, again, they sort of see it as, oh, it's natural, we're all conservatives or liberals, and so we all have mm -hmm. our perspective and bring it, uh, and not necessarily kind of see the historical context to kind of, there was a period when there, there really was mm -hmm. this kind of academic establishment that uh, was uh, uh, treated as neutral, uh, even though it was kind of disproportionately from the Democratic side. Okay, so if you were to recommend one book or paper that I could assign to undergraduates on the history of think tanks, what would you <laughs> recommend, maybe? Uh, there's just a book called Think Tanks in America uh, that is uh, a good um, uh, history, uh, has some maybe a little uh, strong sociological language for undergraduate population, but a good uh -huh. history. Um, uh, but I'd also think that it's, it's useful not to necessarily just just treat it as a, a separate phenomenon. So, for example, mm -hmm. when the Heritage Foundation um, is is founded, which is the, the main kind of subject of that book, it's yeah. really founded by congressional staffers uh, in the mm -hmm. course where they're also founding these conservative uh, uh, caucuses within Congress. And mm -hmm. so I don't think it's kind of a separate phenomenon. We view it as a broader part of the conservative movement, thinking that they mm -hmm. need to build their own alternative institutions. So I think it's, mm -hmm. it's useful for um, students to also just read kind of broad histories of the, of the conservative okay. movement uh, as okay. well that, that tie in think tanks. Okay, I recently read Dan Dresner's book, The Ideas Industry, and part of that book is about the creation of think tanks, but his treatment is relatively brief, so it's not, it's not a great source if you want a thorough history of think tanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, thank you once again for your time. Absolutely. All right, take care. Thank you.